Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Trauma Edition. This is our team's second podcast, and we are excited to continue to share our expertise in trauma with you. My name is Marcy Feynman, and I am a trauma and acute care surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as the General Surgery Residency Program Director at Sinai Hospital. I am joined by Dr. David Sigmund, PGY4 at University of Illinois at Chicago and Education Guru, as well as Dr. Elliot Hout, trauma surgeon extraordinaire from Johns Hopkins and past president of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Together, we will be your hosts in this episode as we discuss the evidence behind the use of pigtail catheters for hemothorax secondary to trauma. While there have been several small studies that looked at whether pigtail catheters are feasible to drain hemothoraces over the past 10 years, in March 2021, Dr. Colvitunio and colleagues led a multi-center randomized control trial that looked at whether pigtail catheters performed as well as large bore tubes. So let's get started. David, why don't you tell us a bit about how we got here? Thank you, Marcy, for that great introduction. Uh, this is actually, uh, it sounds like a basic topic, but it's actually quite interesting. You know, chest tubes, you think of them as a relatively recent development, but they're actually first described by uh, Hippocrates about 200, 300 BC when he talked about using a reed to drain an empyema and then eventually plugging the wound uh, with linen. Historically, interest in this procedure kind of waxed and waned. Um, in medieval times, they actually went away from tubes and uh, invented something called wound suckers. These were people that would actually put their mouths on the wound to aspirate stuff out. Unfortunately, there were no randomized trials on that to really figure out uh, how effective it was. Uh, you thought this would maybe really take off in the 1900s between the trauma from World War I and also the Spanish flu epidemic, and that actually was not the case. Uh, in fact, at that time, uh, tube thoracostomy was considered to kind of be a, a barbaric uh, procedure and a failure as a treatment option, and almost all drainage was done through repeat aspiration. At that time, mortalities, when you, when you had some sort of either thoracic trauma or a big empyema, was in the 30 to 50 percent. Fast forward to World War II, there was actually no significant change. The, uh, the focus was primarily on repeated aspiration. In the Korean War, they dabbled tube drainage, uh, but eventually NATO actually issued guidelines saying for penetrating traumatic hemothorax, the pleural space must be emptied as completely as possible by aspiration. Closed intercostal drainage is inadvisable. It would not actually be until 1961 uh, when the first plastic tube was invented and then shortly uh, later in the 1960s when the Vietnam War broke out, that tube drainage really became a common thing. Uh, and one final interesting note on kind of the history of chest tubes here, when chest tubes were initially made, companies made them in the size from six to 40 French, and they were kind of variously used at different institutions. Uh, however, the companies making them eventually looked into what were their best sellers and found that something in the 20 to 36 French range were the ones that were sold the most. And therefore, they just stopped making tubes of other sizes. So it wasn't really clinical trials that drove that. It was simply um, the production. Going away from the history, pneumothorax is a relatively common procedure uh, with 24 of them per 100,000 um, person years in men and about half that in women, kind of reflecting uh, the increased prevalence of trauma among men. Having to do an intervention for chest trauma, which is a relatively common form of trauma, is relatively rare. Um, one 10-year retrospective study found about 2,500 people that got chest trauma, only 8% of them actually needed any sort of intervention, the most common obviously being the placement of a chest tube. 
However, other studies have shown that the placement of a large bore chest tube can be associated with significant complication rates. Some studies show 30 to 40% have some degree of complication, whether it's something as simple as, you know, a small bleeding or a little bit of infection up to, you know, intrapulmonary lung placement. So it's really good that people are doing studies to look into kind of an optimal way to, to drain a chest, either of air or blood. Um, I believe, Elliot, you have some thoughts on where our current management is uh, and where it should be going. So I think it's important to go over uh, when placement of a chest tube happens for patients with trauma. Uh, and this falls into lots of different categories. Some patients come in in extremis, uh, they are in shock or cardiac arrest, and they need an emergent chest tube right away. Uh, some patients, we uh, diagnose tension pneumothorax with a physical exam, decreased breath sounds, tachycardia, hypoxia, they need a chest tube right away. Um, we're not really talking about those types of patients here today. Today, we're talking about the hemodynamically stable patient who we find on imaging, and that imaging might be a chest x-ray, that imaging might be an EFAST with ultrasound, or more likely it's going to be a CAT scan, we find a patient has a hemothorax. And that's when we're uh, potentially going to be placing a chest tube. And I would say the standard for many, many years and what ATLS teaches us is a standard open technique to place a hard chest tube, 28, 32, 36 French, something like that, uh, chest tube to drain this hemothorax. Um, that's kind of the way it's been done for, for a long time, maybe not as long as David told us about, but you know, at least in my career, that's been the standard. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is the potential paradigm shift from those open techniques with a, an incision, sticking a finger into the pleural space, getting the blood out, putting this chest tube in, going from that approach to a pigtail approach, which is more of a Seldringer technique, uh, a needle, a wire, a catheter, smaller incision, you're not feeling in the space, uh, you're potentially doing this by ultrasound. It really is a paradigm shift for the acute trauma patient who might need their chest drained of their hemothorax. So David, let's uh, go over the article. I was hoping you could uh, kind of go over the reference, give us some of the background intro methods and the results as they present them to us and kind of what the recommendations are. All right. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Uh, so the paper we're discussing today is the small 14 French percutaneous catheter versus large 28 to 32 French open chest tube for traumatic hemothorax, the PCAT trial, a multi-center randomized clinical trial by Dr. Kovatinu. Uh, this paper was initially presented at the 51st Annual Western Trauma Association Scientific Meeting and was then published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, uh, March 16th, 2021. This paper that we chose, we didn't just choose this in a vacuum. There's actually been numerous papers um, kind of demonstrating that um, 14 French pigtails uh, might be more similar to larger chest tubes uh, in terms of outcomes than most people would assume. The reason we chose this uh, paper specifically was this was a multi-center randomized trial that was prospective. So obviously there's a lot of uh, benefit to it doing that way. Um, this paper compared 14 French pigtail catheters that were introduced percutaneously 
to the introduction of large bore, more traditional, either 36 to 40 French chest tubes um, done in the typical fashion with the incision of the rib um, and introduction uh, with a clamp. Um, the hypothesis for this paper would be that pigtails uh, were equally effective to chest tubes in the management of patients with a traumatic hemothorax. Uh, data was gathered for this paper from 2015, uh, July of 2015, that is, to September of 2020. Um, they did exclude patients that were either in extremis or required emergent placement. And of course, they also excluded patients who refused to participate. The main outcomes they looked for were failure rates, which they defined as uh, a retained hemothorax requiring an additional intervention. Uh, they also looked at secondary outcomes, including daily drainage output, tube days, intensive care unit days, hospital length of stay. Um, and then perhaps most uniquely, they did something called an insertion perception experience, which is where they graded on a scale of one to five, uh, how the patient kind of perceived their experience, either having a pigtail placed versus a chest tube. One was rated as a completely tolerable experience, didn't mind doing it at all, not a big deal. And five was the worst experience in your life, would absolutely never do it again, maybe would prefer, you know, almost anything else to having this done. Uh, they did use uh, unpaired student T-tests, uh, chi-square and Wilcox rank sum tests to kind of rate these various factors. Uh, and obviously they set their significance as a p-value of less than 0.05. Uh, which is pretty standard for studies like this. The results of this paper, uh, I think first, uh, it's a little important to reference Poisson's Law, which is a classic pimp uh, question for any of the medical students that are listening out there. Without going into all the variables in it, uh, it basically says that flow through a tube is directly proportional to the radius to the fourth power. Uh, so that is for every portion that you increase the diameter of your tube, um, flow increases by that same amount, but to the fourth power. So clearly having a large tube uh, increases flow quite significantly. And that seems to be kind of the, the justification uh, that many people use for using as large a tube as possible uh, to drain a fluid collection. So when it comes to uh, discussing this paper, they ended up including 119 patients, uh, 56 of whom were randomized to pigtail catheters and 63 of whom were randomized to chest tubes. The baseline demographic characteristics between these patients, age, severity of injury, things of that nature, were found to not be uh, statistically different in any significant fashion. Actually found that uh, flow rates in terms of either failure rates, um, daily drainage output, uh, days that the tube were needed, length of hospital stay were all roughly uh, equivalent um, with 11% of the pigtail catheters failing and 13% of the chest tubes uh, failing. Uh, and remember failing means requiring a secondary intervention. And of course, the p-value for the difference between those two was 0.74, meaning essentially there was no significant difference at all. Really, the only significant difference found in this paper was that patients that got a pigtail catheter generally reported their perception of having it placed uh, with a median value of one, which is not a big deal. I can tolerate it. It was fine. And chest tube patients had a median of three. It was a very bad experience with almost 25% of them rating it as a five, the worst experience they've absolutely had in their life. So speaking to those results, this paper found that really the, there was minimal difference between pigtail catheters and chest tubes in terms of patient outcomes, uh, the ones that they measured. Uh, however, they found a significant difference in the patient experience. Uh, therefore, the authors of this paper are recommending that we change our practice 
uh, to go from chest tubes to pigtail catheters in patients that require drainage of a traumatic hemothorax while hemodynamically stable. Uh, my first issue was with the potential for some data overlap with another paper that the group has written. This is uh, the Bauman et al. paper in World Journal of Surgery, also from 2021. Um, I wonder if there's any overlapping data from those patients, which were part of a single center randomized trial, which I think is one of the sites in this multi-center trial. If I were doing a systematic review and meta-analysis, I think I might have a tough time trying to tease out which patients might be duplicated. I love the fact that the group did a multi-center study, uh, but it is interesting to note that uh, there were about 120 patients, 80 of whom were at a single center, and the other 39 were at the combined other three centers. Two of the centers uh, contributed only eight patients and four patients. Um, so it, I, uh, while it is a multi-center study, I do feel as though they're not uh, well distributed amongst all the different centers. I had a concern with the insertion perception experience or the IPE score. Uh, in general, when you're doing a randomized clinical trial, um, I love the fact that there's a patient-reported outcome, but it's a little hard when it is uh, invented or, or described just for this study and hasn't been previously validated uh, in any sort of fashion in, a, in any other study. Um, I think it is a limitation. Uh, it does have some face validity. It kind of makes sense. We do see a big difference, but I think it is tough to use a non-validated score like that. And lastly, I wanted to talk about the non-inferiority design. Uh, non-inferiority design is a great uh, research design for a study. Uh, what you need to do is pick your non-inferiority margin. They chose 15%, which seems reasonable, but, but there's always quibbling about if that, is that number too high, is that number too low um, when you're doing your study design. And that will then impact the power and the number of subjects that need to be included in a study like this for a non-inferiority margin. Uh, the group had to stop their study early before they got to their original targeted number uh, based on their initial power calculations. That was because of the COVID pandemic, and I can totally understand why that had to happen. But uh, it does mean that they never really met their initial power uh, numbers for their non-inferiority design so that does leave a little bit of a limitation uh, regarding that. Even with these limitations, I would like to applaud the authors for doing a multi-center randomized clinical trial. There are not enough uh, large-scale multi-center randomized trials being done in trauma. And I think the more of these we can do, the better to help answer important research questions uh, for taking care of injured patients. So now that we've discussed the paper in depth, we're going to change gears. We're not going to talk about the paper anymore. We're going to talk about what we're going to do with the recommendations from the paper about changing from hard tubes to pigtail catheters and the logistics and potential barriers to overcome. Marcy, you're a card-carrying educator. You're involved with the ATLS uh, educational materials. Um, you know, right now, the pigtail catheter placement 
is not part of ATLS teaching. And I'm curious uh, about your opinion of, you know, why that might be uh, and how much of a barrier that's going to be if we really want to change the paradigm and use pigtails more often for draining hemothorax in hemodynamically stable trauma patients. Uh, I think that's a great question, Elliot. I am very like team ATLS for sure and have been involved in the program for a real long time. You know, ATLS has been around for a while. It started in 1978. It's become the international standard for the initial care of the trauma patient. And it's now on its 10th edition. And ATLS is designed to ensure that solo practitioners have a safe way to stabilize patients and get them to a higher level of care. It's not designed to teach every possible option for patient care. You know, so I don't think that ATLS is obligated to adopt pigtails because of these studies uh, in their in their class and in their teaching, right? I think that the best way to use this and to extrapolate um, this paper is to high volume trauma centers that do tons of these hemothorax, uh, hemothorax management all the time, right? And we know, you know, data shows that skills degrade over time. That's not really surprising. And as was mentioned and will be mentioned, it's definitely a different skill set, putting in open chest tubes versus pigtails. And so if you're a solo practitioner or at a non-trauma center where maybe you have to do four or five a year, having one safe way to do that is the way to go. And if that one safe way is open chest tubes, then that is completely fine, right? But for high volume centers, where most of us are at right now, um, having options is always a good thing. So I think that there is certainly a role for these, these pigtail placements. I don't think that role is to add them to ATLS or necessarily to change current ATLS teaching. I think it goes beyond ATLS um, to kind of higher level of care and additional management of trauma patients. And I totally understand. And I I agree with you about ATLS, you know, working in a busy urban level one trauma center, we do things a little differently than the ATLS way. You know, we teach all the time about a horizontal versus a vertical resuscitation. We do things simultaneously. Airway chest tubes access is very different than the one-at-a-time thing in ATLS. So I understand your point, and I I would agree with that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask David a question. So you spent some time working in a simulation lab and teaching uh, in a sim lab and creating simulation education. Talk me through how you might set up a program or how you might teach, whether it be residents or fellows or faculty that have been doing things a very long time and have put in lots and lots of chest tubes over decades, how might you teach people this new skill and and what really is different about this new skill? So I think there are obviously things that are different about the skill. We're talking about a big change from a percutaneous to a percutaneous technique, what is essentially an open technique. 
one of the benefits of this is that most of us are very familiar with the Seldinger technique for placement of things like, say, central lines. And really, once you view it more like the placement of a central line than the placement like a chest tube, you say, well, I almost already have that skill set. And then in that regard, I think there's a huge role for simulation of taking an existing skill set, teaching you a new way to apply it. And there's a number of, you know, relatively high-end models that can give you, you know, all sorts of tactile feedback. And there are dummies that get vital signs and things of that nature. But again, given that people are kind of already familiar with, with introducing a tube via a Seldinger technique, even a low model, uh, a low-grade model, you know, like a, a simple... Um, gel thorax uh, dummy can provide, I think, people getting comfortable with using the skill. And once people are comfortable, you know, really the final piece of the training is introducing it in a supervised fashion in the real world. Um, you know, it seems like a small change in practice, but really anytime you go against the way people have been trained for years and years, that transition, you know, uh, requires real work. Um, some of the people we've talked to uh, about this, say one of the key things to kind of introducing this process other than the training is to have a champion in your institution, someone that really kind of says, okay, this is the ten technique we're using. Let's make sure everyone is comfortable. And I think those are all key parts uh, in making sure that everyone in your institution is comfortable in using this, this new technique that we're talking about. I was just going to add on to what David was saying and remind when when people are learning this, remind them that like the setup should always take longer than the actual procedure. So making sure the, you know, one of the biggest purposes of the sim lab, other than actually practicing passing things over the wire is to make sure that people are really familiar with what comes in the kit. Cause that's one of the biggest changes. When we put in hard tubes, you need a knife, a Kelly and a tube. And that's it. Uh, when we put in these percutaneous tubes, the kit comes with like, whole bunch of different stuff. So making sure that people really know what's in it, I think is essential before you get to live patients in the trauma bay. So the other thing I'd like to add is uh, many of these tubes can be placed under ultrasound guidance. And a lot of the people that are learning how to do this tube are learning ultrasound already or know ultrasound or feel comfortable with it. We're doing point of care ultrasound for fast for trauma EFAST looking at the lung, we might be looking at the cardiac function. People are using uh, ultrasound for line guidance already. It's the same people. So it does have an overlapping skill set with ultrasound guidance for a central line. This is ultrasound guidance for some accessing some different blood in the chest as opposed to using it for a central line and getting blood from a vein. Um, so I think remembering to use the ultrasound, uh, if at all possible, uh, is another thing we should be teaching people both in the sim lab and in the trauma bay as well. I couldn't agree more. And I think one important thing to point out, especially from my experience with surgical education and simulation during my research, is to look to our colleagues in other fields. Surgeons, you know, we're very proud of ourselves. We're very proud of our fields. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but what I really saw during my research into medical education uh, was that there are a lot of specialties that integrate simulation training all the time for certain skill sets like ultrasound. Our colleagues in the emergency medicine department, many of them have great simulation training in ultrasound, have great curriculum. Um, and these are people that we can reach out to and kind of access uh, curriculum that have already been developed and kind of convert it to our own use for these new skill sets we want to introduce. I love the idea of like using resources and not existing in a vacuum. You know, we should never reinvent the wheel. And if somebody already has something created, we should 
definitely capitalize on that. You know, I've been doing this for a bit and Elliot, you for even longer. Uh, and my, or at least one of my biggest uh, concerns in changing practice is now trying to refamiliarize all the staff that's involved in a trauma with the new process, right? This goes beyond just knowing how to do the skill, right? Now we have to make sure we have it stocked and everyone knows where it is and people know what they're looking for and what to get. Um, I see that being a challenge. And I'm wondering, Elliot, if you either see it the same way or have any thoughts on how to like ease that transition? I think it's a great question. I think part of it is there has to be a champion. And I think in parallel, we're doing the education and the simulation, but we're also writing a protocol or you're writing a guideline for your hospital or you're writing something down that everybody knows. It's not just the trauma surgery attending. You have to make sure, like at my place, you have to make sure that um, the trauma surgeons know and the emergency medicine physicians. You need our fellows and residents from both of those departments. You need the nurses. You need the techs who stock the equipment. You need uh, to figure out a place where it's going to fit in the Pixis. You need to make sure everybody knows the name of the kit you want. Um, I think those are logistics that you have to do in parallel. You can't just show up with a, you know, a kit that you bring down from some other floor because you're used to using it in the SICU and randomly start throwing it in in the trauma bay. That doesn't work. That is a recipe for disaster and a recipe for failure. So I think if you're going to decide to do this as a group, um, the idea of a champion and then doing it in a formalized fashion is the way I would recommend it. I think also this is like the perfect role for simulation, right? Like at our place, we uh, once a month or once every other month try and do insight to multidisciplinary trauma sims. And we bring all of our sim stuff up into our actual trauma bay and involve everyone who would normally be in a trauma, respiratory and anesthesia and ER nursing and us and anybody who would need to be there. Um, I think that's such a great role for this, you know, because then people really do have to know where it is in the trauma bay and what the steps to put it in. And this is why we're changing practice and make sure the ultrasound's available and all those things that go into it before it's for real. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to really think about this issue of translating evidence into practice. It's been said that it takes 17 years for randomized clinical trial data to get into clinical practice. And our goal should be to do that faster and to do that better. And I think that's where evidence-based medicine can help. That's where guidelines can help us. And implementation science, the science of how do you make change? How do you get systems to change? How do you get people to change? How do you overcome the barriers to change? Those pieces of implementation science are really important in healthcare these days. Uh, and, and this is, I think, a perfect example of translating this evidence from re research from a randomized trial into getting it into patients literally and figuratively uh, today at trauma centers across the country. Uh, so with that, I think we're gonna transition over to Marcy, 
uh, for some final thoughts on the topic. You know, I was lucky enough to get to converse with a couple of the authors of this paper to really get their firsthand feedback and opinions about being involved in the study and what they took away from it and now what they kind of do at their own institutions. And obviously, not surprisingly, you know, they all do feel really strongly that this should change practice. You know, they focus a lot on the pain factor and patient experience, and rightly so. I mean, these days, patient experience is a national metric that is um, that is tracked and that is inclusive of trauma patients. So if we find ways to take good care of our patients and do it in a way that's increasingly humane, I think we should take the opportunity to do so. Um, and they also really stress the need for having a physician champion in order to affect change. You know, 17 years is a crazy amount of time for something to get from uh, evidence into practice. And I think as trauma surgeons, you know, we pride ourselves on the ability to take care of anything and adapt to any situation that we need to. Um, and as well, we should. But this is just another thing that we need to adapt to. And the evidence is there. Uh, we just need to take advantage of it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Please check out our show notes for additional information and references. And we'll see you back on Behind the Knife soon. Until next time, dominate the day.